This morning we're going to discuss a topic that is uh, very central in the Christian faith. It's a word I'm pretty confident that most of you are familiar with. Uh, if you spent any amount of time in the church, you probably have heard this term time and time again. But it is a concept that I'm pretty confident that not most people really fully understand the full extent of. And that is the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. Redu redemption is probably one of the most pervasive themes that runs through the Scripture, and not only through the Scripture, but it is a, a Christian doctrine that is at the core of the Christian faith. And that doctrine is simply that of a loving God redeeming those who by nature are rebellious, fallen, unclean, sinful creatures and making them forgiven, holy, just, and righteous before him. I don't think there could be anything else that could be more beautiful. So undeserved is the redemption of God. We see redemption in the earliest pages of the scriptures. Way back in Genesis, we see God's redeeming and redemptive love toward mankind. We see it in Adam and Eve. We see it in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see it in the nation of Israel. From Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament record screams of God's redemptive love for his people and a future redemption that was going to come to Israel. In the New Testament, Redemption is the theme that runs directly through the Gospels. It runs the, directly through the epistles. And not only the promised redemption of Israel, but the redemption of ordinary individual people across the world. And it's all done through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? Um, so we see redemption, and there is a future redemption. You know there's a future redemption coming? Do you know that? While we may have been redeemed now, there is a future redemption of our bodies when they resurrect from the dead, when we this perishable takes on imperishable, when this corruptible takes on incorruptibility, when we will be glorified in the presence, not only in spirit, but in body before the Lord. And we look forward toward that future redemption, if you're a believer. The most glorious thing, I think, is that hellbound, unclean sinners are made to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is the doctrine of redemption. How do we define redemption? Well, I think one of the clearest verses of redemption is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. You probably know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, just of, uh, being justified as a gift by His grace. What? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what does redemption mean? What does redemption involve? Redemption is really the release effected by the payment of a ransom. That's really what it is. It is the release effected by the payment of a ransom. It's literally buying back 
you're buying back something that, or you're repurchasing something or winning back something that was previously forfeited. Right? We see this in Isaiah 53, verses uh, 4 and 5. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings we are healed, or by his stripes we are healed. Notice verse 5 there. But he was pierced through for our transgression. There's an act, there's a result for us. There's a buyback. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or the punishment for our well-being fell upon him, and by his wounds... We are healed. There's a redemption there. That redemption was poured out through the very Messiah, Jesus Christ. I think probably the clearest verse in all of Scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we, the believer, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses an accounting illustration of a debit and a credit. Our sins were charged to Christ's account. Christ's righteousness was charged to the account of the believer. Hence, we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Some other scriptures regarding redemption. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And, and trespasses would be all of those infractions against the law of God. Sin. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. In the sister epistle of Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, in whom there was a buyback, in whom he purchased back, in whom Christ paid the ransom to redeem those called by his name. Even in the Old Testament, in Psalm 111.9, the psalmist writes, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained the covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This act of redemption could not have been accomplished by a human being. It had to take God to accomplish this act of redemption. And there is nothing a human can do. Look at Psalm 49, verses 5 through 8. Why should I fear in the days of adversity? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast 
in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. It took God to redeem man. Man could never redeem another man, not to the satisfaction of God's holiness and God's justice. And so the redemption that is offered in Jesus Christ is both broad and it is both deep and it is both rich. Therefore, this act needed to be completed and executed by God and God alone through His Son, Jesus Christ. What does the scriptural record say? Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Christ became that mediator. Christ became that ransom. Christ was the only one capable to pay that debt and to satisfy the justice and the requirement of God. Titus 2.14, speaking of Jesus, says this, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, sell us for good deeds. I want to pause on this because the real scripture text we're going to look at is Luke 17. But I want to pause here for a moment. Notice what redemption, the intent of redemption. Notice the intent of it. The intent was Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us, notice, from every lawless deed and purify, him, uh, purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is what the church is to be. This is what believers are to be. Redemption wasn't merely the act of forgiving sins, and that's it. That's where it ended. Redemption involved the act of purifying a people after God's own heart, a people that are going to worship God, a people that are going to praise God. Israel failed in that endeavor. Israel was called apart to be a people that worship God, but instead started following the pagan ways of all the nations around them, but through Christ, the intent of redemption, the intent of salvation was that God would have a people for his own possession. 1 Peter 1.18, speaking about this further, says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, your forefathers. Redemption is so beautiful that in the thrones of heaven, the redemption through Christ Jesus is praised. Look at Revelations chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seal. For thou wast slain. Who is he speaking about? Who are they, who are they praising? Who are they glorifying? They're glorifying Christ. For thou wast slain and didst 
purchased for God. Notice this, did purchase for God. Remember the definition? I said it was a buyback. Redemption is a buyback. He buys back that which was previously lost or forfeited. What was previously lost or forfeited? The human race through the fall. That was previously lost, and there needed to be redemption. There needed to be a buyback. So it was indeed Christ Jesus who effects this buyback. Notice what they sing in the thrones of heaven. For thou wast slain, and didst purchase for God with thy blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You see the church that way? You see other believers that way? That other believers are kingdom of priests before our God? What was only once through the tribe of Levi, which was only once through a birthright, has been given to all of mankind that we are to be a kingdom of priests before our God. How rich, how glorious, how magnificent is the redemption that was required and acquired through Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says this statement, he says, saving faith, I put in parentheses redemption, is an exchange for all we are, for all Christ is. It's an exchange of all we are, for all Christ is. The Gaithers made a, a song very popular in the 70s called Something Good. And in that song, there's a statement in there that I love. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful of my life. The implications of, and the benefits of redemption are huge. The benefits of redemption include eternal life. We like this one, don't we? I'm not got eternal life in Christ. I'm never going to perish. I have eternal life in Christ. It involves and it gives us forgiveness of sins. And we really like this one. Because if we're in Christ, we know just what filthy rags we really are. Is that not right? If left to our own devices, if not for the working of the Holy Spirit in us, in sanctification, in separating us to God, there'd be no hope for any of us. So we say hallelujah, praise God, right? We have eternal life. John 3.16. We have forgiveness of sin. Praise God. But there are other things. It involves righteousness, the benefits of righteousness. As I shared with you, the righteousness of Christ imparted to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, just like I showed you. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It involves freedom from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Death. Both physical and spiritual. 
Redemption releases us from the curse of the law. Here's a beautiful one. It is adoption into the family of God. Joint heirs with Jesus. The inheritances of Christ are ours. We become sons and daughters of the living God. Think about that for a moment. Stop and pause for a moment. Do you see yourself as a son or daughter of God? It involves deliverance from sin's bondage. Time doesn't allow me to do an exposition of this, but all you have to do is read Romans chapter 6. You who once were slaves to sin have now become slaves to righteousness. Having been baptized with Christ, you have been raised in newness of life. Sin is no longer master over you. Another benefit of redemption is peace with God. We're no longer striving against God. We're no longer in disobedience to God. We're, not, we're no longer saying, Lord, I won't, ha- I won't do what you direct me. I won't do your way. The enmity, the warring that we had as unbelievers have been done away with. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And praise God. Another benefit of redemption involves the indwelling Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit of God. Know ye not that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you? This is an area that many Christians need to learn to come into the presence of God, to seek the power of God, to know the fullness of the Spirit of God, and to be able to experience God's presence through the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So to be redeemed, to be redeemed then is to be forgiven, cleansed, Holy, justified, freed, adopted, and reconciled to God. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8 says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption. And that's what I want to focus on today, the abundant redemption that is found in Christ. It is not merely just the forgiveness of sin. It is not merely that God checks a box from, from going to hell to going to heaven. Everything that God does, he does with specificity and intent. God is deliberate. And so redemption is deliberate. And so I said, well, let's look at the Scripture text and see, is there a text where this 
illustration of redemption, the abundant redemption, the undeserved redemption, the glorious redemption of Christ is evident. And I've selected for this text Luke 17. So will you turn with me to Luke 17 in those paper Bibles? Praise God. Luke 17, you may be familiar with this passage. Luke 17 is an account, it's not a parable. It is an account of a miracle of Jesus. But within the context of the miracle, we see the abundant redemption of God. Pick up with me at verse 11 of Luke 17. And it came about that while he was on his way to Jerusalem, that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And it came about as they were going that they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face uh, at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found to turn back and give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So what's the scene that we have here? Jesus is on his way, by the way, deliberately to Jerusalem. And he's skirting Samaritan territory. And he's near the city of Decapolis, a Gentile city, housed a Roman army in there, close to Samaria. And he is intentionally and deliberately making his way to Jerusalem. And outside a village come ten leprous men. Now, what should we know about leprosy in first century Israel? Well, people were, with leprosy were considered unclean. They were considered unclean physically. They were considered unclean spiritually. They were considered unclean ceremoniously. The law had required that if a leper was found that they must live outside the camp so they could not live within the city or they could not live within the village which meant that where they could live was any place that they could find shelter usually outside the city. Lepers could not go into the market and buy food. Matter of fact it was required by the law that if a leper was coming upon somebody who was non-leprous, that they had to maintain a 50-pace distance and they had to shout out that they were unclean, right? So they had to warn the people that were coming by saying, unclean, unclean, I'm unclean. They had to, so just imagine the stigma 
associated with this disease. And you have to remember that the pervasive mindset at the time was that illness was the result of some form of sin, either in the person or the person's parents or the person's grandparents, for somebody to be stricken with leprosy. So not only they could have been stricken with blindness, somebody would have said, well, who sinned that this person was born blind? But now they are stricken with the most hideous and the most scarring type of disease. And on top of that, it is extremely painful. And I don't know if you know, but with leprosy, nerve endings die. Still very prevalent in, in, in countries like India and some of the others. But it actually, when the disease gets advanced, digits, limbs, they just fall off. Because they're so disease-ridden that literally a finger can come right off. There are stories in India of people who suffer with leprosy that when they go to sleep, that the rats come and they chew on their extremities, but they can't feel it because the nerve endings are all dead. So they wake up in the morning with portions of their extremities chewed away. And I I don't mean to be gross, but I really want to give you a sense of This is the nastiness just naturally of the disease. Couple that now with the stigma of you must have did something or someone in your family must have done something for God to curse you with this. Remember in the Old Testament with Moses when Miriam was disobedient? God cursed her with leprosy. And so you have this disease that's horrific. And here comes Jesus now into the village, and here come ten leprous men. We don't know anything about them. We don't know, were they Jews? Were they Gentiles? Were they Samaritans? We don't know. We only know that one was a Samaritan. And so they come, and what's their request of Jesus? Look at verse 13. They enter a certain village, verse 12, 10 leprous men. They stood at a distance. They met him, and they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. Now, I'm willing to bet, I mean, I think it's a safe conclusion, that they must have heard about Jesus, this miracle worker, this great prophet is into town. And so in my thought, in my estimation, right, the scripture doesn't tell us, but he does, the scripture does tell us clearly that their request of Jesus was to have mercy. Now that word mercy means to show mercy as God would show mercy. Now I can guarantee you if they were lepers, chances were food was not abundant, shelter was not abundant, clothing was not abundant, Whatever they had to find, they had to find one way or another. So I believe that based on the wording in the scriptures, they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on me. And maybe they thought that Jesus would give them some food or give them some money or give them some clothing or satisfy some kind of physical need. You notice they didn't walk into the village and say, Jesus, heal me. And maybe part of the reason they said that was because maybe they were beyond the thought process that this could ever be healed. 
It's a death sentence. And so maybe they were starving for and they wanted just their immediate basic needs. That's a lot like many Christians today. Diagnosed with a particular condition or a certain situation befalls them, whether in their their, their, their job or their economy or their budget or whatever. And we look at things and we tend to say, there's no way out of this. We're doomed. But yet all things are possible with God. And as believers in Christ, we should never come to that conclusion. We're not the ones who demand from God. We don't boss God around and say, God, you have to do this. you have you got to be very careful, by the way. A lot of times... Praying with boldness doesn't mean that you order God around. Praying with boldness means that you could come into the presence of God and you could make your request known. But I've seen people, you know, in prayer with the very best of intentions, basically bossing God around. Lord, you're going to do this and this is how it has to happen. And, you know, we need this, that, and the other thing. Listen, don't do that. He is God. We're lucky we can open our mouths and say, bless you, Lord. Here these lepers come into the town and they have one request of the master. And that request is, have mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Look at Jesus' response in verse 14. And when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priest. I want to pause right there. Odd response. It's like someone, someone coming up to you and say, hey, you got a few bucks to spare? And you go, no, go show yourself to the priest. Jesus didn't answer their request for mercy, did he? Well, not overtly. Not verbally. As a matter of fact, the law had required that if somebody was healed of leprosy, that they had to go to the priest. And the priest had to do a ceremonial cleansing of a person healed with leprosy. And that ceremonial cleansing would restore the person spiritually and ceremonially. They could be restored to the synagogue. They could be restored to the city. They could be restored to fellowship because now they are no longer spiritually unclean, ceremonially unclean, and physically unclean. But there's one problem. No one was being healed of leprosy. And I'm willing to bet as they've got to some of those priests, some of those priests probably said, what do you want me to do? I've never done this before. I don't know anybody who's been healed of leprosy. But look at the Lord's direction in anticipation of what he was going to do. Have mercy on me, Lord. Go show yourself to the priest. I'll tell you what, I'll bet you a million bucks none of the lepers caught on to that. What what does he want me to go to the priest for? Does the priest have something for me? But the Lord told him, go and show yourselves to the priest because the Lord had something greater beyond it and the something greater is in part two of verse 14. And it came about that as they were going, what happened? They were cleansed. You notice it says they weren't healed. 
They were cleansed. What was the thought of leprosy? That you were ceremonially what? Unclean. You were spiritually what? Unclean. You were physically what? Unclean. And so the Word of God says that they were cleansed on the way. And I think this is one of the most beautiful passages because the Lord's anticipation of His work directed them in the right place. That word cleans means it's, it's removing all filth. That's what it means. All filth is removed. It's like ivory soap. It says 99.9% pure. When you're cleansed by Jesus, you're 100% cured or cleansed. This right here is a genuine miracle. Jesus did not touch them. Jesus did not sprinkle oil on them. I'm guaranteeing you that Jesus was 50 paces or more away from them, but he just spoke the word and it was done. Now notice, you would think, perfect, all the glory to God. You ever share the gospel with somebody and somebody says, only I saw a miracle, I believe. You ever have that experience? If only I saw a miracle. Maybe you're talking to somebody who's sick and say, well, if the Lord cures me of this, I'll believe that God is true and Christ is the Lord. You know, the scripture testifies all throughout scripture that that's not true. They'll see miracles and they will not believe. Look at the response here in verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. Notice this here. One of them, one of them. There were ten. Ten were healed. And let me tell you something. With leprosy, to be healed, you just have to look at your skin. That's it. So they just have to look at their hands and look at their legs and look at their body. They knew they were healed. There's no ambivalence there. It wasn't like they were left with scars and they couldn't really tell, but the disease went away. No. With leprosy, when the healing came, it came clean. 100%. They were restored. There's weaknesses too in leprosy and the vocal cords. They have difficulty speaking and all the other different things. So at once, somewhere along the journey, Christ spoke the word and it was done. But notice the words of Luke. One of them, when he saw he had been healed, did what? Turn back. He turned back with a purpose, glorifying God with a loud voice. Now, think about it for a moment. Let's say that maybe, and we know this person is a Samaritan, right? So the difference between Samaritans and Jews, we saw that, remember, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, she asked Jesus a very important question. Lord, where do we worship? Where do we worship? You say you do it down there in Jerusalem. We say we do it up here in Mount Gerizim. Where do we worship? Now, to the Jew, 
the worst thing you could be, worse than a Gentile, was a Samaritan. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. Samaritans intermarried. These were Jews, children of Israel, who intermarried with the pagans. Jews considered them half-breeds. They considered them contemptible. If a Jew had to journey, he would go all the way around Samaria so as not to walk through it. So not only is this person cursed with leprosy, but he's also cursed by being a Samaritan, contemptible to Israel, worse than a tax gatherer or a prostitute. Think about this for a moment. He realizes his healing, and he realizes this, that it's only the priest that could certify them cleansed. So by not going, he might miss his opportunity to get cleansed and restored to the community. But what happens? How can one be touched by the power and the presence of God and not give glory back to God? When you were saved, when you were changed by the power of Christ, you gave glory back to God. Maybe you've experienced physical healing. You give glory back to God. How does one get touched by the power and the presence of God and not come back to give glory to God? And this poor reject, this cast off, this leper, this Samaritan, upon realizing that he's healed, turns and says, I gotta go back to Jesus. I gotta go back to Jesus. And what does the scripture says? He turned, glorifying God, and he wasn't just going, Lord, I thank you, Lord, I thank you. He says he turned and he glorified God. With a loud voice, hallelujah, God, thou art great. You are wonderful. You are glorious. You are magnificent. Praise be to your name. I was a filthy leper, and now, God, I am cleansed. And how do we know? Because when he gets to Jesus, he fell on his face at his feet. He prostrated himself before the Lord of glory. The highest tribute that could be paid. By the way, for all the people who say Jesus is not God, but he is the Son of God, Jesus would have rebuked them at that moment and said, Do not worship me. Only God deserves worship. But we don't see that in the Scripture, do we? He fell at his feet. And he given thanks to him. And Luke records this word. He was a Samaritan. He was physically unclean. He was racially unclean. He was, he was unclean in every sense of the word. But it is the unclean, the Samaritan, who noticed the cleansing, who returns back to God, and he worships at his feet. Let me submit something to you. All of us, are lepers or were lepers, and all of us were the equivalent 
of Samaritans. We were exiled from the future hope of Christ. The only thing that reconciled us is the blood of Jesus Christ. Is the only thing that could reconcile us. And when one is born again, and when one is saved, we should have that experience where we fall at the feet of Jesus and we say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord. And I want you to notice something here. There's four responses. Now, we started this with redemption. You're probably saying, Pastor, get to the point about redemption. Boy, talk about going the long way. But here it comes. Here it comes. There are four points about redemption that we see in this Samaritan's response. The first response is he was compelled to worship God. Compelled. He was compelled to worship God. That work of healing that was done in his body and his soul compelled him to come to the place and to worship God. His redemption was manifest in the healing and being cleansed. And this produced in this Samaritan the necessity to give glory to God. He was on his way to the priest, and that was the only thing that was going to certify him. But when he saw his healing, he was compelled to give God the glory and to worship God. So he returns where? He returns to Christ, and he worships him. There's an application in this because so it is with those who have been saved and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. They are no longer the same people. I am no longer the same person. If you were in Christ, you were no longer the same person you used to be. We are compelled to worship. Why are we here on Sunday? Believers, why are we here? We're compelled to worship Christ and to give him glory. Why? Because we are changed, we were purchased, we were restored, we were renewed, we were cleansed, and we were revived. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, all of the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. This is true. We see redemption in his compulsion to go to God. The second point. We see redemption in that he repented from their sin. Now, I want you to get this. Take a look at verse 16. It says, he fell on his face, giving thanks to him. He was a Samaritan. It would have been a sin. Listen well. It would have been a sin had this Samaritan realized that he was touched by the power and the presence of God, not to go back to God and give glory. That in and of itself would be a sin. And for those who would say that, oh, I've been saved, but your life has not been changed and you're bound by the same power uh, that you were bound by before and you don't have the inkling to worship God, I would tell you, you better examine your heart because the believer wants to come and the believer wants to fall at the feet of Christ and worship him. 
to continue in his self-absorbed appreciation of his healing and moving on with his life. That's what happened with the other nine. Hey, the other nine were healed. The power of God had overcome the other nine, but it wasn't enough to bring them to the place that they would come and worship God. But not the outcast. Why? Because he's been given a new lease on life. And this is life eternal. He has been reborn. And this man, by falling at the feet of Jesus, demonstrates repentance. And he falls on his face. And here we see the response to redemption. It is made manifest in repentance. It's made manifest in the worship of Christ. That worship emanates out of a heart recognizing our total lack of self-worth and Christ's total worth. It is the realization of the unmerited favor, redemption, grace, and mercy of God. How could a believer be any different? The third thing we see in the Samaritan, regeneration, rebirth. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but nine? Where are they? Was no one found to give back glory to God except this foreigner? He was immediately changed physically and spiritually. Notice the words of Jesus. Were not ten cleansed? Once again, that word means to make pure, removing all intermingling of filth. The filth of leprosy was taken away from all the lepers that had approached Jesus. But the physical healing was not enough to cause them to see the glory of God. Only this Samaritan, the outcast, and not only was he stricken with leprosy, but he was an outcast to Israel. He would have been thought of as a true apostate to Israel. But in whom did God do the work of redemption? The most vilest sinner. The most contemptible person thought of in the eyes of the religious community and yet it is there that the work of grace the work of mercy the work of love of Christ is done in the life his returning indicates that he's reborn that he's regenerated for the first time in his life now he gets a pure opportunity to stand and worship God as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, a day is coming and now is when those who worship God shall worship him in spirit and truth. And this Samaritan gets the opportunity to worship God in spirit and truth. You know, I think about Jesus' words in Luke 5, 31 and 32, when he was asked, why do you, why do you run with prostitutes and the unclean and Gentiles? And Jesus made this statement. He answered them and said, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Hey, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
And lastly, the fourth point, the fourth picture, is he's reconciled to God. Look at verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is a great illustration where the scripture uses very specific words for very specific meanings. The words the Lord uses here and the the words that Luke records are very deliberate and intentional. Word for well is the same word for salvation. The Greek root word of sozo. And it means properly to deliver out of danger into safety, used principally of God rescuing believers from the penalty and the power of sin. Do you know that these are the same words that Jesus spoke to blind Bartimaeus? Your faith has made you well. Literally transliterated, your faith has made you saved. This was saving faith. This wasn't a faith that was in the Samaritan. This was a faith that was placed in him by God. This was the irresistible call of the Holy Spirit who brought this Samaritan to a place of repentance and who heeded the call of the Holy Spirit and came down. This is demonstrated both in his profession and in his action. He has turned to follow Jesus, and because he turned to follow Jesus, guess what? He's made right with God. He's reconciled to God. Listen to me. Believing faith is the unmistakable evidence of the work of redemption in the heart and in the life of the believer. Make no mistake. Don't accept any cheaper alternatives. Saving faith produces righteousness. It is in the profession and it is in the possession of the believer. Those redeemed by the Lord turn and follow Jesus. We leave the past world behind and we follow Christ. Indifference to Christ, indifference to the things of God is not an evidence of salvation no matter how many professions you may have made, no matter how many aisles you may have walked, no matter how many times you descended into the waters of baptism. If you are indifferent to Christ, it is not something you should take comfort in. And you know me by now. Don't say God knows my heart because he does. You'll never persuade the Lord. Well, Lord, I'm indifferent because, but I really love you. The only evidence of salvation is the redeemed life. That's it. One set free from the leprosy and the bondage of sin. One set free from the indifference toward Christ and the priority of self-pleasure, self-interest, self-absorption instead of Christ. 
John MacArthur would say this, a change of heart is the fruit of regeneration and the proof of our spiritual union with Christ. Those who never repent, who lack any true love for righteousness, who have never truly believed, the proof of true salvation is a life of loving submission to the Lord and thy holy word. What a glorious story here in Luke 17. What a a beautiful picture of redemption. Dying, dirty, filthy Samaritan. No hope in the world. Finds Christ and is redeemed, restored, and reconciled to God. We've seen in this story in Luke's gospel that regeneration, redemption involves a compulsion to worship God, a repentance from sin, a spiritual rebirth, regeneration, and being reconciled to God. The question that we all need to ask is, is that evident in me? If not, does your pride keep you from repenting and becoming right with Christ? Listen to the words of Paul. With this, I'll close. Philippians 3, 7, verses uh, 7 to 9. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of, of what? Of knowing Christ my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul considered Christ so glorious, so magnificent, that his primary purpose, his solitary purpose, was to know him. That's it. And on the path of knowing him, I suffer the loss of all things. So I would be found in the righteousness of Christ. What does the words of Jesus say here? John 5, 24. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. What does John 3, 16, 17, and 18 say? Well, we know what John 3, 16 says. What 17 and 18 say? For he who believes is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the only name of the only begotten Son of God. We know, you guys have heard it long enough, And when we talk about belief, we're not talking about intellectual accumulation of facts. But we're talking about total and complete surrender and abandonment to Christ. We entrust ourselves to him. So as we look at the beauty of redemption, the challenge that we have to look at is, is that in us? And if it is in us, we can look at redemption and say, oh, glory to God. 
for all the blessings and mercy and grace that thou hast bestowed upon me. And if not, I couldn't urge with a greater sense of urgency or soberness other than these words, repent. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe. Let it all go. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. Maybe you never come to church. Maybe you never set foot in a church. Repent and turn to Christ and be saved. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Mighty Father, it is with glory, Lord, that we thank you and we praise you for the goodness and grace that you have demonstrated to us. Father, my heart is if anyone hears this message and whose life has just been ritual and tradition, that Father, Lord God, that you would quicken them to life, that you would open their eyes to faith, they would repent from their sins and turn to you as the only one who can save them from their sins. And Lord, for those of us, may we glory in the work of redemption that you have provided in Christ Jesus. And may we make it our purpose to make this redemption known to every person we come encounter with, Lord. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.